All right. Well, we are in a new series this morning. We're going to start uh, uh, a series I've entitled Daniel. Uh, I was talking to um, Chastity and Nevaeh this morning, and uh, Chastity came over and said, Are we talking about Daniel and the tiger? I said, Close. Uh, we're, we're real close to that. Uh, but we'll get to the lion eventually. Uh, I think this is a really incredible book. I'm really excited about it. We're going to be in four weeks in Daniel. And so um, I think that uh, we're not going to be able to look at the whole book. Obviously, we're not going to be able to get into all of that. But um, there, like we did, I think we did that two summers ago. We did with Romans. Uh, I, I, I did a whole summer in Romans. And we kind of went from the top to bottom all the way through that. We can't do that here with Daniel. Instead, we're going to look at four specific instances in Daniel that I believe have the ability to speak some hard truth to us and can really challenge us and, and kind of make us examine our own hearts. Now, there's some, some really interesting things about the book of Daniel, so I'm going to give you a little bit of context as we begin. Uh, and there's three things here we're just going to list off. Number one, it's split in half. If you read the book of Daniel, so it's 12 chapters long. Chapters 1 through 6 is all kind of narrative. It's kind of the story. And then chapters 7 through 12 is, is really, it's the visions. If you think of it like this, it's Part of its story, the other half of it is like apocalyptic dreams, okay? And so uh, it's, really, uh, it's really interesting that at the halfway point it splits in two. The second interesting fact about Daniel is that it was written in two different languages. Uh, you got to remember, um, it's not, uh, let me just say that it's not divided on the prophetic vision division, okay? It's, it's, it starts in Hebrew and then it goes to Aramaic and then it ends back in Hebrew again. And you ask yourself, well, why? Because you got to remember that Daniel was written during the time of the exile, which means that the people of God are are uh, are been dispersed. Uh, the Babylonians have come in; uh, they've taken over Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, they've kind of they're the world power right now, and they've kind of kicked all the uh, Hebrews out, and they're living over in a foreign land in the in, in the land of Babylonian. Uh, and so they uh, they're they're speaking. That's kind of the common language Aramaic is of uh, of the. It's almost think about. Uh, the New Testament with Jesus spoke Aramaic, but they wrote everything down in Greek because the Romans were kind of ruling, okay? So this is kind of the same thought. And so uh, Aramaic becomes the language of the exiles. And what we'll see here in just a little bit is that Daniel is kind of towards the middle, last part of the exile time. And so it says that Daniel serves from uh, all the way up into uh, Cyrus, which Cyrus is the, the end of the exile, really, when you think about it like that. And so Aramaic is kind of the language of the day. And so when, when we read this, it's just interesting that it's written in two different languages. It's, uh, Daniel has that, Ezra has that, and I believe there's a sentence in Jeremiah that is written in Aramaic as well. So there's, this is not just unique to uh, Daniel, but it's kind of in, unique in this situation. And then the third thing that's interesting about this book is that because of all the prophetic visions, they have their eventual fulfillment, okay? And so there's this, there's this kind of um, really intense half of the book and, and there's a lot of imagery and there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of end times kind of thought in that. But all of that begins to play itself out. And so because of that, a lot of people want to say that Daniel wasn't written until the second century A.D., which is uh, between the year 100 and 200, okay? They want to think this is at least maybe 40 to 140 years after Jesus came about. And so uh, that's called, there's a word for that. It's called vaticinium ex eventu. And that's a really fancy Latin word that just means 
Per, that means prediction after the fact. It's like if I were to come to you guys and say, listen, it's 2020, but I believe uh, in the year 2000, we're going to have a national crisis called Y2K. And everybody's going to really be scared about it. And it's going to be this really odd thing. But, but I'm predicting right now that that's going to happen in the year 2000. Well, everybody now would go, well, of course you know that was going to happen. We've already experienced that. That's what critical scholars want to say is happening in Daniel because of all these visions and all these things. Because they came true, they go, oh, this must have been written after the fact. We don't obviously believe that. We believe that it was written at the time, but it says that it was written. And that uh, this is just another proof that God is the author of Scripture and that God kind of works out these events and he's the one who gives these visions and he's the one who fulfills these visions. So it's these three interesting things that are going on in Daniel. So when we read this, we've got to remember there's a lot happening right now. There's a lot that's going on in this book. And the, and the, the big point is is that God is in control of all of these things, okay? Now, with that in mind, just know that we're not going to get into the visions. If you're familiar with Daniel, if you've read through that maybe a time or two, uh, the 77s and the abominations and all that kind of stuff, we're not going to get into all that. We're not going to be able to do that because that is more of a Wednesday night study than it is a Sunday morning preaching study. So just know that, that we're going to kind of stay in the narrative form of the first half of the book of Daniel. So just know that we're going to kind of get into all that. But hear this. Everything that we discuss today and even over the next few weeks is going to be hard. It's going to be hard to preach. It's going to be hard to hear. I believe that it's going to challenge us to do some inward soul searching, maybe see some real priorities in our life. It's going to help us get correct perspective on God. And so this morning, specifically, I'm going to ask you three hard questions. We're going to kind of work through the very first of some of the big major events in Daniel. And in that, we're going to see some things that I think are really going to make us question some things in our own life. So I don't want you to blow through these questions. I want you to see them on the screen or even hear them online and go, oh, yeah, I'm good. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. But I really want you to stop and I really want you to think about, well, what are these things and how do they really apply to my life? So let's just start in the beginning, Daniel chapter 1, uh, verse 1 and 2. This gives us some really great context here and we'll kind of talk about this as it, as it unfolds. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, uh, Jehoiakim, king of Judea, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, to his hand along with some of the articles of the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put them in the treasure house of his God. Now this all happened, we know that Jerusalem fell in 587 B.C. And so we have this historical context. Nebuchadnezzar comes in, he's in charge. The Israelites are now scattered throughout the Babylonian Empire. Um, Nebuchadnezzar also comes in and not only does he take over, but he also destroys the temple. And this is a huge, major event in the lives of the Jews and the Hebrews. Because the, the, the temple that Solomon built, this goes all the way back to King David, this big, huge, massive, and imposing structure is now a pile of rubble. As a matter of fact, some people say that when the Babylonians came in, if you're familiar with the, the geography of this land, there's a kindred valley that goes down on the other side. Of the, they say they just pushed it off into that valley. 
that these big uh, guys came in and they just knocked the whole thing down and they just pushed it off and there's just this rubble left. What was the most impressive structure probably on the face of the planet. And so the temple is gone. And so before they knock it over, of course, they're going to go in and get all the good stuff out of it, right? And so Nebuchadnezzar goes in and he gets some of the artifacts out and he carries them back to his home. And we're going to talk about that in, in weeks to come. It's really important and, and it'll kind of play into our story. But just know that uh, not only do they come in and take over, they want to come in and destroy any semblance of real life uh, of the people that they dominate. That's, that's one of the things about the Babylonians that were so impressive in this moment is that not only would they just come in and try to take over, they would come in and, and completely turn upside down the world of the lives of the people who they now rule. And so they, they're in, they're kind, of, they're kind of taken over, but he's also smart. He says, I want some of these Hebrew men to serve in essentially in my court. I want them to be uh, kind of part of, of the inner workings of what's going on here because that's going to also give me influence over the rest of the Hebrews. If I, if I pull in a few, then they'll say, oh, those are my guys up there. We, we'll listen to them. And so the Bible says that he, uh, he wanted men who were young, without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve. And so just imagine me, okay? Just imagine that he's just describing your preacher, and it's exactly what, maybe not most of all those. Okay, so they, they want young, good-looking guys who are smart. Think of it like that. I know that in, in, in our context, we go, of course you do, but really, in, why would you not? If you're going to get people who people are going to follow, why would you not want to get the good-looking ones, right? And so they, he gets all these guys together, and, and of these men, Daniel was one of them, okay? He was one of these guys that uh, just kind of made himself stand out among the rest. The others if, if you were reading the first part of Dan, Daniel, you'll remember the others are that we know for sure are guys by the name of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, when, when we say these names, everybody automatically connects the dots and knows probably right where we're going. But, but don't miss this, okay? Daniel chapter 1 verse 20 says this. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better and all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. These guys, they, they stood out. And when you stand out, people want to take you down, right? We all know this. We've probably lived this on some level of our life. And so we have this kind of backstory that we all probably know from heart because we've learned this since we were little. We've learned this since we were in vacation Bible school in 1985, making, I remember making uh, pot holders with matchsticks. And so essentially our, our vacation Bible school teacher gave me and all my friends a box full of matches, said light them on fire, let them burn halfway down and blow them out. And then we're going to glue them to a piece of wood and give it to your mom and dad. We can't do that anymore uh, because we would burn this whole place down. But back in the 80s, nobody cared. And so we were lighting matches like crazy. Why do I remember that? Because this is about the same time we learned this story, right? We have this understanding of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we know kind of what's going on with it. But don't lose this incredible moment that happens through 
this story. So let's look at it kind of together. Fast forward into chapter 3. If you've got your Bible, we're going to flip over a couple. Uh, I can't cover all of this. There's lots of great stuff that happens in chapter 1 and chapter 2, but we're going to jump right in with chapter 3. Verse 1 through 3 tells the story of the image that Nebuchadnezzar uh, kind of sets up, right? We know it's 90 feet tall. It's 9 feet wide. It's just this huge statue, and it says it's an image, and most of us uh, and most scholars believe that it was probably an image of himself, right? Because he's the king, he's the one who's in charge, and these guys are normally pretty full of themselves. And so if you're going to build a statue, why would you not build one that looked like you? And so it doesn't necessarily specifically say that, but we all just kind of assume, yeah, this was a picture of himself, okay? And so he, he calls all the important people, all the magistrates and all the officials and all these guys together, kind of the, to the dedication of this image. And they all come because he's the king and he said to, right? Verse 4 says this. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now, obviously, we have this predicament, right? Our four Israelite men, our four Jewish Hebrew men, are forced to either bow down and worship something that they know they should not do, or they have to disobey the king, hopefully not get caught and somehow suffer the consequences if they do. This is a defy the king or defy God moment. I'm going to pause here and I'm going to ask you one of the very first of our hard questions. The first question is, what are you bowing down to? What are you bowing down to? It's really easy for us to say nothing, right? Because there's no images, there's no 90-foot statues of gold, right? We don't have that. But I'm willing to bet that there are still idols in our lives. Maybe for some of us it's an addiction. Some of us it's, a, it's sports or vacation or the idea of new and better and uh, bigger. What about our physical appearance, our jobs, our, our, our desire for influence and power? Or maybe it's finances. Maybe it's social standing. Maybe it's political affiliations. What are we bowing down to? Just because we're smart enough not to call them an idol doesn't mean that's not what they are. I'm going to say that again. Just because we're smart enough not to call it an idol doesn't mean that's not what it is. Consistently, over and over again, we place things and items and people in positions over God. And so I'm going to ask you this question again. What are you bowing down to? I'm going to make a really hard statement here that's going to hit real close to home for many of us. Anything Anything that you put more time and effort and devotion into other than God is an idol. Anything. Anything you put more time, effort, and devotion into other than God is an idol. I'm going to put that a different way. If you're more upset about missing blank than you are 
about missing your time with God, then whatever was in that blank is an item. If you're more upset, listen, when the world that we live in, let's just call it what it is. If you're more upset about maybe missing your vacation this summer than you are about missing your daily time with God, then that vacation is an item. If you're more upset about maybe the possibility of not being able to, your kid not be able to play sports, then you are about missing your time with God, then sports have become an idol. And what we immediately do, and I get it, we, we immediately pull back from that statement and we go, no, we make all kinds of excuses, but an excuse doesn't change the reality of the fact that sometimes and most times we put things and people in positions above him. And when we do that, those things and those people become idols. So what are you bowing down to? This could go into your job. Well, I have to. Yeah, we have to. It could go into your marriage. You could go into your kids. Does that mean that God doesn't want you to focus on those things? Absolutely not. It's not what he's saying. It just means that, that everything that we do has to be has to function under the umbrella of the gospel being evidenced in our lives. So when we, when we look at our marriages, uh, our marriages are not a reflection of how much we love each other. Our marriages are a reflection of how much God loves us so that when people see our marriage and the, and the relationship that we have with our spouse, people see how Jesus loves us. That's what your marriage is supposed to look like. When it comes to uh, your, your, your work and, and everything that you go to and do and the job that you have, you, you kind of filter that through Colossians 3.23 that says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. Not for man. In other words, he's the focus. He's the one that we're trying to please. He is the one that gets our best. And we never compromise. Even though we have to give attention to some things and give attention to other things, our most attention-getting thing is God. So, do you see how these things shift with a correct perspective from being an idol to being a vessel to make his name known? We, we change the focus of our heart to not only, not am I, let me just put this in the, in the perspective of me a few years ago because I get it now, I'm a preacher. And you guys, well, this is your job. God is your job, right? So it's, kind of, it's kind of unique to me. Okay, so let's, let's put this in the perspective of, of years ago when I was a banker. I was a banker. If a banker defined my life, then I was being defined by the wrong thing, right? I, I needed to say that I was, a, I was a Christ follower who happened to be a banker. I was a uh, I was a doctor who was a who was a who was I was a Christian doctor. I was a Christian logger. I was a Christian. I don't know. I don't what everybody else in here did. I don't even know what Dino does. I'm a Christian fisherman, right? I don't know what Dino does outside of fishing golf. Okay, and so there's this idea that that we we have to put the priority on the most important thing, and it's not. Our, I'm married, but man, I'm a I'm a Christian husband. I, I, I'm a father, but I'm a Christian father. I'm, I'm a this, but I'm a Christian that. And, and the emphasis and the, and the umbrella that everything else in my life falls underneath is that I am a Christ follower first. And so whatever that thing is that you've put in front of God, that thing has become your idol. So our question, our hard question is, what are you bowing down to? These men had a decision to make. And remember what I said earlier, they stood out. And when you stand out, people want to take you down, right? And so here's what happens. Verse 8 through 15. 
some of these people come forward, some of these officials and magistrates guys, they come forward and they tell Nebuchadnezzar, hey, all, we know what we're supposed to do when all the music starts playing. We get it. We understand that. But there are these guys, these, and the Bible says these Jews, whom you have appointed to high position. Do you really see their issue here? Do you think their issue is them not bowing down? I think their issue is the position that they hold who don't bow down. There are these guys who don't do what you ask. Well, obviously that doesn't set well with the king because the king is the king. And the Bible says that he was furious with rage. And you know what those words mean? Furious with rage. Okay, there's no other de definition of that statement. And then he gathers them together and he kind of famously gives them their, their kind of charge there at the end. He says, listen, if you, I'm going to give you one more opportunity. And then in verse 15 says, but if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown into a blazing furnace. And what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And you can, you, we all read this and grew up and, and, and we know this story. We read that last phrase, then what God can rescue you from my hand? We hear that music, dun, dun, dun. Right, Because we know how it's going to play out. And we understand how the rest of it is. But, but don't miss this because this is really incredible. And I believe this kind of reveals more about our lack of authentic faith than most verses in Scripture. I'm going to break down their response into two, two halves. And so let's, let's look at the first part of it first. This is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who's being called into the carpet. And Daniel 3.16 says this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. Now, for those of us who know the rest of the statement, I believe that when we know the rest of the story, this statement almost feels like it's, it's, it's prophetic foreknowledge, right? Like, like these three men kind of knew that God was going to save them. So let me, let me say it like this. This statement was not made in prediction. It was made in hope. They, they didn't know how this was going to fall out. They didn't know what was going to happen next. They weren't saying, oh, God has already revealed to us. We've already had a dream. We've already had a vision. We know that we're going to get to walk around in the fire and not be harmed. They are saying this in hopes that God was going to do this. Look at the verbiage they said. If we are thrown in, the God we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us. That word able here means to prevail. He will prevail to save us. The word rescue means to depart from, to leave. In other words, these men looked at the king and said, God will deliver us either from death or in death. That's an incredible statement. Saying, I'm not afraid God's going to deliver me one way or the other, either from death or in death. Here's our hard question number two. You ready? Do you truly believe that God is able? Do you truly believe that God is able? I believe that too often God does not move because we as his children have already made up our minds that he won't move. 
We negate the power of God before it's ever manifested in our life, and we rule him out before he has a chance to rule in a situation. Do you really believe that God is able to work all situations in your life? Now, this is really easy to say yes to, right? Because we're in a church service on Sunday morning. Oh, yes, God is able. We know that. But what about when faced with impossible decisions? What about when your marriage is on the brink of divorce? When your business is about to go under? When everything and everyone seems to be stacked against you? You believe that God is able. He is able. He will rescue. This is the very definition. This is hope. Right? This is hope. But what follows, I think, is one of the biggest life-defining statements in Scripture. I'm going to read it all together because it gives us great context. Back to verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this manner. For if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. But even if not, man, that's an incredible statement. I can't begin to express the level that this should hit us all on. We believe that God is able. We believe that God will rescue, and we love to say and declare all that. But even if he does not, Think about the times in your life where he has not. Some of you have prayed faithful prayers, faithful prayers of healing, and he's not. Faithful prayers of restoration, and he has not. We prayed for a clear path, and he's not given us one. And, and I think sometimes our, our, our default seems to be, well, God doesn't care or God's not interested or God's not even real because he's not done what I want. I haven't received what I've prayed for. We've been asking for these things and our answer is even if not. Now here's my hard question number three. Do you have faith even in the nots? Do you have faith even in the nuts? Just because he's not doing what we want doesn't mean he's not doing anything. Just because it doesn't work out for us doesn't mean that it doesn't work out. Do you have faith in the nuts? I've heard it said a hundred times. I stopped believing in all this because I never saw God, I never saw God move on my behalf. I never, I never got what I wanted. I never, he never answered my prayer, or even worse, he never rewarded my devotion. I just kind of gave up on that. I was living this life, and I never saw any benefit. My life was just as hard as everybody else's. Hear me on this. Faith has never been about your happiness. Faith is always about his providence. Even if you never got another thing that you wanted, even if you never had another prayer answered, even if you never see another tangible 
benefits of a devoted life for God. Faith is not about getting our way. It's about surrendering to His. But even if not, we will still not bow down and worship. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 has been a defining verse in my life since I was 19 years old. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, declares the Lord. Neither are my ways your ways. Just as the heavens is higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than yours. There's a higher thought. There's a higher way, and it's His way every time. We have to surrender even in the if-nots, knowing that He has something better for us. What is this? This is faith. Do you see the statement of hope? and faith and how they line up so perfectly together. They're saying, listen, our God is able. We have, we have a hope that He can. But even if He doesn't, that's my faith that steps in. Even if He doesn't, He's still God. Church, how many times do we downgrade God because He didn't do something that we wanted Him to do? Here's my last thought. We're going to wrap up. You guys know the rest of this story. I don't have to read through that. Nebuchadnezzar obviously doesn't like that response, right? <laughs> He's the king, and so he orders the furnace to be heated seven times hotter, right? Famously, seven times hotter, and for the men to be bound and thrown into the furnace, as a matter of fact, to the point to where the men who throw them in actually die from the heat of the furnace. The Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar looks up and he sees four men in the furnace. Verse 25, he says, look. I see four men walking around the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. He had, no, he had nothing to, to perceive or had no context to put who the fourth person could be. So he, he goes to the, the mouth of the furnace and he kind of calls out for them, and, he, and it says the, that the men walk out of the furnace. That's incredible. And my favorite part, verse 27, they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies. Nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Isn't that incredible? Hmm. I love the detail here, right? Their bodies, their hair, their clothes, even their scent didn't smell like fire. Now, one of my favorite things to do in our house, and we do this pretty often, especially even in the summertime, is we, uh, we'll build a fire in the backyard. We've got a little fire pit, and we'll sit around the fire at night when the mosquitoes aren't just awful. Uh, and, of course, if you don't live in what seems to be the uh, tropical rainforest of Warren over the past week, uh, we can do this outside, right? And so we'll build a fire, and the boys will come out, and it normally involves s'mores at some point during that conversation around the fire. And we'll just sit out there, and we'll just talk, and we'll just kind of hang out. We lo- I love, absolutely love to sit around a fire. And some of us have this uncanny ability to attract smoke no matter where you sit around the fire, right? It just seems to kind of follow you. You'll get up, move around to the other side, and it's blowing your way again. So you, some of you have that. But here's what I've noticed. Every time we come in from being outside, you smell like it, right? You smell like that campfire. And I love, listen, I love the smell of that kind of campfire atmosphere, but, but you smell like it. It's pretty potent. It's a pretty pungent smell of fire. Now, the Bible says here that... These men didn't even smell like the fire. Think about, think about the fires, figurative fires, that you've walked through. Think about 
the really hard times, the times where you thought you don't know if you're going to be able to make it out okay. Maybe, maybe the emotionally draining or the spiritually challenging fires that you've walked out. Did you come out smelling like smoke? Did you come out smelling like whatever you just had to go through? Some of you would say, listen, some of those things, I came out, smoke would be an improvement of what I smelt like, right? Listen to what Psalm 141 says. My prayer is to be counted as incense before you. What if? What if during those fire moments, what if during those, those furnace times of our life, our hope and our faith dominated our lives to such a degree that the smell was not of that of the trial that we endured, but as a prayerful offering to God? What if what we walk through in our correct perspective and our understanding of, of how hope and faith play hand in hand and how we say, God, no matter what it is, I'm going to trust that you can. But even if you don't, I'm still going to pursue you. What if that fragrance is what God smelled? I think too often we still smell like smoke. I think too often we still come out and we still kind of have the after effects of whatever it was that we were having to deal with. What if our hearts were so in tune with what God had for us that when we come on the other side that we smell like hope and we smell like faith? And that's the kind of experience that we want. What are we bowing down to? What do you, what do you smell like? Do you really have the faith to believe in the if-nots? These are these are hard questions out of a very common children's story. Don't miss what God's speaking in these moments. I'm going to ask TJ to come back, and we're going to have a time of invitation. We're going to allow this to kind of just marinate in your heart for just a little bit and kind of really begin to seep into the things that you know. Man, I, I need to make some decisions. I need to make some adjustments. I need to see my life in a reflection of what God is doing. Not that I'm just this person, but that I'm a person defined by who I am in Christ. Maybe my priorities need to be shifted. Maybe my life needs to be kind of refocused. Maybe, just maybe, I need to understand the God who walks in the fire with me. Let's pray, and then I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to whatever it is that God's calling you to. Maybe it's just a repentant heart. Maybe it's a, I need to get my relationship with Jesus right. Maybe I need to get saved this morning. Maybe I need to, maybe I need to join the church. Maybe I just need to kind of get refocused in what God's got. This is your time to respond to what he is doing. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. And we thank you for today and the message of today and all that this very common story holds for our hearts. And God, we don't, want to, we don't want to miss this because of familiarity. And I believe these three hard questions are hard questions that we have to answer in our own life. What are we bowing down to? What's more important than you? God, don't let us just default back to, oh, nothing. God, let's really examine how we're living what we're giving the most attention to, what's defining. God, challenge our faith. 
I challenge us to step out and trust even if the if-nots are a possibility. And Father, let our lives be defined by hope and faith that that is a prayerful offering. God, what an incredible story. If there's somebody here this morning that doesn't understand that relationship, doesn't understand that Jesus would literally walk in the fire with us, I don't want to ask questions. Father, if it's just a lot of us in the room, I just feel like we need to get focused again. We need to kind of rein back in our perspective. God, I pray that this is an opportunity to do that. Father, if there's anything else, anything that people want to pray for or with or have questions about, God, this is your chance to work in their heart. Father, I'll be here if they need to come talk. God, if they... They just need somebody to pray over them or with them. I'd love to do that. God, let us be responsive to your word this morning. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand up.